0: Welcome to Lobster Brain. Lobsters fight, and when they win, it changes the neurochemicals in their brain and in turn, the hierarchy of the lobster community. Each success makes the lobster more of a leader and it becomes a top lobster.
1: But why are we telling you this? Because in this podcast, you'll learn about how success can influence your mindset, strengthen your beliefs and change your thought processes you'll also discover that it's both success and hard knocks that creates leaders, or as we'll be calling them, Top Lobsters.
0: Hi, I'm Lisa Morton.
1: And I'm Danny Donickey.
0: And in this episode, you're going to hear from Mo Gaudat. Mo is a Top Lobster. He was Chief Business Officer of Google X, and he's now a serial entrepreneur and author.
1: Mo was driven to find new meaning in his life, after the death of his son, Ali. Mo's book, Solve for Happy, introduces you to the idea that there is an equation that you can follow to find greater happiness. It's now Mo's mission to help 1 billion people become happier worldwide, all in his son's name.
0: Lobster Brain is all about rewiring your brain, and Mo is the expert in rewiring your brain for happiness. So, how do you become happy? Why does our brain struggle with it? And how do you find happiness in such extreme grief? You'll hear all about this and much more in this conversation. And at the end, you'll hear about the impact that applying Mo's knowledge could have on your life. Mo, so on a social media post that you put out recently, you said that the only way to find yourself is to lose yourself first.
2: Oh, yes. Why would you cover that one? Yes, absolutely. (laughs) Uh, Most of us, if we look back at our life, we, we find that the moments where you thought it was the darkest, the moments where you thought you were most lost, the moments where you really didn't know what you wanted to do, if you look back, these were the defining moments, absolute defining moments that made you the person that you are today. And, you know, despite the fact that this happens over and over to each and every one of us, to our friends, to our families, we realize that this is the way life teaches us. You get lost, you, you, you know, you sometimes hit rock bottom, you start to look for your way. Somehow, the next time we feel lost, we're like, we're uncomfortable about it. When in reality, if you're a true gamer, you know, if you're really, really playing the game of life properly, the way to do it is to say, oh, interesting new opportunity to find my way. And I think the, the reality for all of us is that uh, the, ag- the aggregate development, the aggregate growth that you get when you have lost your way uh, is probably a lot more than, than every time you deliberately wanted to tread a specific path. Because when you tread a specific path, you're sort of doing it on your own strength and power but not letting life itself with, with its mighty intentions and mighty ability take you to where life wants you to be. And I think where life wants you, wants you, wants you to be is, is really the place where you should be.
0: And you've said also that in those situations where we do feel that we've lost our way, we often try and do the same thing over and over again, do more of the same stuff. And I think what you're saying is that we need to stop.
2: Is open up. Uh you know, I had a boss once in my uh in, in my career that used to say when we are in tough times we tend to do more of what we know how to do best. But what you know how to do best is what got you to the tough point, right? This is what got you to the to the difficult place. And perhaps one way of doing it is to actually receive, is to be open, is to say, so maybe there is a new journey, and that new journey requires a few new new skills that I have not acquired so far. It may take me on a path that I am not really very comfortable with, but if that path is is what life is presenting me with right now, I might as well be open enough to just jump in and take it in and be open to, to opportunities, to open to possibilities and see where that takes me most of the time when you look back again on th- at those situations where you took a path that you sort of were forced to take you've discovered beautiful experiences, met beautiful people learned you know important things and became a person that's very very different perhaps a better person than the person that took the first step on that path
1: well you're a bit of a happiness expert what is what has been your experience of the relationship between success and happiness Non-existent.
2: It's it's quite interesting when we, you know, most of us are told uh, um, sort of an algorithm. You know, work really hard, study really hard, dedicate your life to some kind of a TED Talk worthy objective, and then when you succeed, you'll eventually be happy. Okay, and the truth is. Uh, yeah, the first half of the algorithm is correct. If you work really hard and you know learn very hard and commit yourself to a target, you will succeed. You know, you're more likely to succeed. Let's call it this way. But that success is not going to make you happy. I think that bit of the equation fails. So so often you see people who are extremely successful, you know, rich and famous, and they have fans screaming their names. And they commit suicide. There is a misconnection between success and happiness because, honestly, it's not success that brings happiness. It's happiness that brings success. You you know, Malcolm Gladwell's work on on the 10,000 hours, the idea that if you do something frequently enough, you'll end up uh, being one of the best in the world at it and that would make you successful uh, is probably true. And what's the easiest way to do something for 10,000 hours is to do something that you absolutely love. Absolutely, something that you enjoy, something with people that you enjoy being with, with experiences that you you know that enrich you and make you feel uh, committed and interested in what you do, and so it's not happy. It's not the success that leads to happiness. It's happiness that leads to success. And you know, if, if we were to be wise, of course there are things you have to do every day that are just work. You know, they pay the bills or they you know teach us something or they get us through a you know a hurdle on the way, but every now and then one needs to reflect and say, what is it exactly that I stand for? What is it exactly that I want to learn? What is it exactly that I want to spend time doing? And when you make those choices and end up doing something that you love, you end up being very
1: successful. In your book, That Little Voice in Your Head, you speak about how our brains are wired towards negativity. And when things happen in our lives that that demand our attention, it turns off that voice. Can you speak a little bit more about that, please?
2: Yeah so so, so y- y- you see our brains are never going to stop even by the way when we meditate and we calm our brains down so the incessant thinking goes away it's not that the process of thinking has stopped it's just that the process of thinking has has been turned into experiential thinking where you're focusing on your breathing or you're focusing on your you know or on the flickering of a candle or whatever that is so so thought continues, it's just, it just re- gets redirected to a different type of thought. And accordingly, when uh, something catches your attention, whatever that is, your incessant thought, the background thought goes away. Now, is that a good thing or a bad thing? It depends really. Sometimes you actually want analytical thinking that is maybe a little incessant in nature, you're trying to solve a problem. And sometimes you need calm and quiet and peace. You need a, a good parasympathetic nervous system engaged so that you're actually able to replenish your muscles and re- rebuild your muscles and, you know, reflect and, you know, re- digest your food or whatever, okay? And each of those is a different mode. And once again, humans, we, we tend to take one of them very, very seriously and the other not. We, we take the, the one where we're engaged in life to try and make a difference to life or to ourselves very seriously. But we don't take the one that is seemingly passive, where we're not doing much at all, but we're relaxing and calming and avoiding our burnout and really, really not getting ourselves to the point where we're going to pay dearly. And once again, every human needs a little bit of both, a little bit of this and a little bit of that. And it's really quite interesting why we let one of them run and the other not.
0: In that book, I love the concept of the fact that your brain's an organ and that annoying voice is not you telling you. Yeah. And it reminded me of a book that actually Danny gave to me about 5 years ago which was um The Untethered Soul by oh, it's one of my, f- my favorite books best
2: book ever, <laughs> ever. In, in my in my uh, uh, ranking it's definitely yeah. number 3.
0: Yeah. I read it every year and every year I read it.
2: Did you did you read his other book The Surrender Experiment?
1: Yes, very good. I have not oh, read that one. Oh my
0: god. Really? I need to read that. He's,
1: read, he's written another one as well. Did you read the other, one? the other the other one? Heard, he, yes. he wrote uh, when he was younger and it was mm-hmm. kind of like his spiritual yeah path. Yeah but the untethered
2: soul is brilliant.
0: It's amazing. And he yeah. he says that you know you would if you you lived with a flatmate that spoke to you in such negative terms and, and told you what you were and how you showed up, you'd just get rid of them. You'd evict Absolutely. them from your flat. Absolutely. Mm. And so you call your brain Becky. Yeah. Yeah.
2: Yeah. Your flatmate I'm, is I'm, Becky. I'm, I'm, and Becky, Becky, <laughs> Becky stays, but but she behaves. Yeah. Right. And you know, the story of Becky, sometimes I call him Brian when he's a little <laughs> too obsessive, basically. <laughs> but, but, uh, but the story of Becky was one of my best friends who... I explained the idea that you're not your brain too. and she basically came back next week and said something really weird. And I was like, "As, what is this? What did you just say?" And she said, "Oh, I'm so sorry. It's not me. It's Becky." And I was like, "Who's Becky?" <laughs> and she said, "Becky, I call my brain Becky. She was the most annoying girl in school, right? Oh, right?" And so, you know, basic. And that's really what happens. Our brain is truly the most annoying friend you have. Mm. Okay, if you don't keep them in check, what do they do? They have a negativity bias that launches six to seven out of every 10 thoughts that they launch at us are negative okay that's actual scientific research in in stanford the adult brain is 60 to 70 percent negative now honestly how much of the last half an hour of our life has been negative we're in a wonderful place it's we have a roof on top of our head we're having a wonderful conversation we're connected you know we we, everything's nice those people listening to us or watching us you know if if you're fed and you have a digital device to connect to a podcast, you're okay, Mm -hmm. right? 99% of our life is okay. Most of us have never seen an earthquake, ever, okay? Most of us, what do we get? We get three days of uh, a throat infection twice a year, but the rest of the year you're healthy, right? And the truth is for most of us, we don't recognize how annoying that brain is. But that brain has no bad agenda at all. It just loves you so much, you know, like we, we always make those jokes in Egypt about your mom, yeah. okay? When you're 47, still calling you and saying, uh, are you wearing layers? Are you, know, Are you? Are you uh, did you eat today? What yeah. did you eat? You know, it's can, not only Egypt. Is it everywhere? <laughs>
0: yeah. I did that my daughter today. <laughs> yeah.
2: And you know, it's not because your mom doesn't love you. It's because your mom loves you very much. But her way of, of, of protecting you is let's make sure that everything's fine. And that's what our brains do. But what our brains are doing is that they're looking at everything around us, they're ignoring the positive, and they're focusing on the negative. You know, if a a tiger shows up in front of you, your brain has no intention of saying, okay, let me count. Uh, first of all, amazing muscle tone, <laughs> second, right? S- second, you know, what diet are you eating? Like this is like, what? I need this, right? And the third is, you know, ooh, so cute. Are you a cat as well? You know, like, can I, can, do you purr, right? You can, you can really, really enjoy that moment. What does your brain say? Your brain says we're we'll <laughs> really gonna die. Right, I you know we're gonna die if <laughs> your boyfriend says something annoying. Or we're gonna die if the traffic is delaying you for ten minutes. We're gonna die if you know you switch on the the news and the, the you know politicians did something corrupt. Like, no, we're not. Every politician, I'm oh, like not every politician. Every day of your life, there was a politician that said, did something corrupt, and you didn't die. And and you know the game here is, your brain also has the ability to go and invent iPhones. But to stop it worrying and having start working on iPhones, you have to make a conscious decision. You have to tell your brain, okay, we're going to, you know, take a few moments now and we're going to design something. Or we're going to take a few moments now and we're going to think about something objectively. And this is an act of being in charge, I think is the real answer, Mm -hmm. to be in charge of what's going on in in, in that machine. And the easiest way to do that is to literally treat that machine as a third party. Why? Because if Becky came to you and said, did you know what Jackie did yesterday? (laughs) Okay. And, you know, behind your back, she said this and that, and she did it while she was kissing Jimmy. Right. (laughs) And you know that Becky's lying. Right. What would you do? You would basically say, seriously, Becky? Seriously? Is that seriously what happened? You know what? Jackie was with me last night and we were talking about A, B and C. And it happens to me. I walk out, you know, I, I always use this example. My daughter and I, I she's, the, she's the love of my life. I love nothing more than my daughter. She loves me too. I mean, it's obvious if I show you my WhatsApp messages. It's very obvious. I miss you, dude. Okay. You're the best. Okay. I love, I love this. When, are, when am I going to meet you again? And one day she literally texts me at night and she goes like, come papa, I'll make you breakfast in the morning. I go over. She hugs me. She says, I miss you so much. We met four days before. I miss Mm -hmm. you so much. Why are you not spending more time with me? I love her. And then we had an argument. She made me breakfast, and then we had an argument. Happens. Mm -hmm. I say, baby, okay, look, I'm going to go out, have a coffee, come back when I just thought about it a little. The minute I walk out, my brain goes like, Aya doesn't love you anymore. Where did that come from? Mm -hmm. Like, how can you say that? Hmm? Like, Becky's like, seriously? Okay? And, and literally, I'm, I'm not exaggerating, and I, I'm not ashamed. Hmm? We were in Montreal at the time. I literally stopped in the middle of the street. And like a madman, I stopped and out loud said, what the F did you just say? Okay? Seriously, this is how I treat my Becky. Okay? What the F did you just say? How, how, how could you claim this? How could you claim the right to destroy my life with one passing comment that you have no evidence for whatsoever and just throw it like that. Aya doesn't love you anymore. You know what brain? Aya loves me, she did this, she did that, she did, she prepared breakfast, she did. No, we had an argument. The truth is we had an argument. And when you start to see life that way, you realize how much of our life is wasted on unsubstantiated thoughts. And I was given the, the honor and the joy to speak at the NHS today. And, you know, one, one of the examples I was given is, you know, those are heroes. Those, those people are incredible. And that the team I was talking to was an intensive care team. And if you're in intensive care, you're bound to lose a patient. You're bound to. And we were talking about the fact that you can take that one fact and tell yourself, I'm no good. I lost a patient. And your brain can focus on that 100%. Or you can tell yourself the truth, which is, I lost one of 100 patients. I saved 99 patients. And the truth is, of course, we don't want anyone to lose anyone unnecessarily. But if you're out there saving lives, doing the best that you can, you have to tell your brain to see the truth. And our brains, sadly, and I dare say this, wrote it in two of my books, has never, ever 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 told you the truth ever not once in your life what your brain tells you is what it thinks is the truth okay which is never ever the truth because it's mixed with emotions it has perception issues it has a lot of filtering of the truth for me to tell you the truth of this room believe it or not i'm an engineer it it would take me 14 to 15 pages <laughs> to describe to you accurately what the what the truth of this room is so what does your brain tell you it says few pictures on the wall, two wonderful people, microphones, and a setup. Is that the truth, brain? No, it's not at all. It's my brain's approximation of the truth, so that it can just keep Mm. going on. Mm. Okay? And on one side, sort of the minimum damage, if you want, is we lose the appreciation of all of those wonders that are around us. I, I was walking in St. James's Park today, and, you know, there was this parade, not used to parades, I find them very boring, to be honest. Okay? So <laughs> like, watch I,
0: them or we'll be in them.
2: <laughs> be in them is like torture. But, you know, to watch them is like, okay, so men walking in Like, Why are so people so interested? Okay. But then suddenly I realized that my brain was cheating me. This is a beautiful moment, a beautiful experience that I would never, ever come across again. I have never come across before and I could as well spare two minutes to enjoy it. I mean, in any case, they were br- brocading everywhere, so I couldn't walk anyway. But, and then I found myself contemplating that those people, knowing it or not, have affected my life forever. They have, in a way, implanted a memory in my brain that will never go away, whether I choose to or not. And by the way, they delayed me for seven minutes, and they, never, they will never know. And I started to ask myself, what have I done today that may have done that to another person. And mm-hmm. and somehow that moment, small moment of, come on, brain, don't be so uptight about everything. Let's just immerse ourselves in this present moment, not complain about the seven minutes, text the person I was about to meet, and just really, really see the truth. The truth mm-hmm. is once-in-a-lifetime experience and could be a positive experience, boring as it is, in so many <laughs>
1: Mo, it feels like a good time to speak about how we know each other. So I was walking through Madrid, listening to that incredible um, interview that you had with Stephen Bartlett on Diary of a CEO, and I felt this compelling energy in my body. It felt, uh, it was, it's indescribable, it was such a strong energy. And walking here today to meet you, I was thinking about that interview and your son Ali, and I felt that energy again. It it feels like Ali is here with us in in the room. Can you speak a little bit about Ali for us, please?
2: I think uh, I have been blessed with many things in my life, you know, way more than the average human, blessed with the connection to you, for example, which I think is a wonderful friendship that most people would die to have. But uh, interestingly, I was—I think my, one of my biggest blessings ever was my daughter and my son. Every father says that, but they were a lot more to me than just my kids. Ali was very much, very, very much my guru, if you want. He was uh, my mentor for sure. He was my wisdom, if you want, at a time when I was actually not wise at all. So as a child, he spoke very little, uh, but when he spoke, you had to listen, okay? He had that feeling to him where when you were in his proximity, you felt that something was unusual, abnormal. I mean, Ali's teenage photographs are normally Ali in the middle and six friends on this side and six friends on that side literally hugged him, okay? (laughs) And, And he had that magnetism to him somehow, even though he spoke very, very little. And that young boy, completely changed my life in so many ways and then he left our world he left our world sadly because of a very preventable human mistake you know a a very simple surgical operation and he you know five mistakes sadly and all of them were preventable all of them were fixable but somehow you know life works in mysterious ways so they all happened five in a row and then they all were not fixed properly or three of them were not fixed properly and four hours later, we realized that our son was internally bleeding and literally shutting down his vital organs one after the other. That moment was maybe the center point of a connection to the other dimension, if you want, that is, for an engineer like me, very illogical, okay? I'm a, I'm a highly scientific, totally f- based on the scientific method, I realize there are many things in life that I can't measure and that do exist. At the same time, I also realize that I shouldn't take them for granted. But if the scientific method is about observing something, I observed connections with that child after he left that are completely undeniable. Undeniable in terms of uh, it goes to the extent of Ali sends me. We communicate in music. We communicate in songs. We communicate in dreams. We communicate in very unusual ways and you know 15th of january 2020 14th of january his birthday the night of his birthday he basically told me everyone knows that the plague is coming okay which basically preceded COVID. he would tell in so many different ways before he died he, he would basically tell us look guys i'm leaving right and you don't understand, you know, you think he's, he means I'm leaving, I'm going back to Boston, or you think he's saying I'm leaving, I'm, you know, I'm not interested in something or I'm gonna change direction or something. It felt as if he knew he was leaving our world and he was completely peaceful at it. As a matter of fact, for the last two weeks before he left, the only thing that he would ask his friends about, and we're talking like 20, 30 friends, is what happens to us when we die. And funny enough, just to know how generous he has been as a soul, the last person he spoke to, he has always listened, uh, she had an opinion, uh, she explained her opinion, he asked a few questions. And then he said, well, I think we will only know when we get there, okay? And then he said the one sentence that I promise you made the like the biggest support in my grief was that he said, but I'm optimistic, okay? I think it will be absolutely better than what we think it is. And those words, to me, I don't think are... I don't think these are uh, sort of limited to Ali, okay? I, I tend to believe that the scientific method is our human approach to comprehension of everything that is physical. So anything that you can observe and measure, you need to deal with with the scientific method. But there is so much in our world that you cannot observe and measure. And we know it exists. So the scientific method will tell you if something can't be measured repeatedly and cannot be observed, it doesn't exist. That, that statement is wrong. The statement should be if so- something cannot be observed and measured repeatedly, it's not the concern of the scientific method. It's the concern of other disciplines. Mm-hmm. And those other disciplines are spirituality, their are philosophy. There could be any. And the trick is we need to acknowledge as humans that we actually need to ponder those things, we need to contemplate those things. And, you know, we know that love exists, we just can't measure it. But everyone will tell you, but it surely exists, right? So it's not the concern of the scientific method. And actually, that's reflected in science, there is very little research on love. But you know, it exists, and you need to think about it, and you need to contemplate it, and you need to include it into your comprehension of how the universe works. Now, those non-physical things, metaphysical, if you wanna call them, they do exist and they do exist within our ability to comprehend, but using an instrument that's different than this. It's different than the brain. So your brain is capable of analyzing and working through information and so on. your I don't wanna say your heart as the little pump that pumps blood, but your, I don't know what to call it, your essence, your mm-hmm. core or your core is connected somehow to the real you. And the real you is non-physical. And that connection, basically, if you open up to it, can also connect you to everything non-physical, including the, the real essence of my departed son and every other essence of every other being. Hmm? You know, I don't know if you've ever had those experiences, but you know, it's very well known that some people dream together. So they would be in two different places. If they're really connected, Mm. they would wake up having been in the same dream when they're in two different places. Now, that's basically scientifically impossible to prove, right? But at the same time, if you've experienced it, you would then tell yourself, does that mean that my real essence and her real essence were in that same place? Okay, Mm. does that mean that my real essence and my son's real essence are connected somehow?
0: Do you think you're very spiritual before
2: you lost your son? It's was... funny that I, yeah, the way I look at it is I was very religious mm. before I lost my son mm. in a very unusual way. I'm not religious in the religious dogma way. I, you know, I, I did in my in very unusual mathematical approach to things, I did what I normally refer to as the mathematics of the divine. At a very young age, I was 16, I was raised in a Muslim community. Islam is a very conformative religion. And so in my mind, I said, okay, if I'm going to be, you know, stuck in this for the rest of my life, I might as well verify if it has legs at all. Mm. And the only thing that I could do at the time is I did the mathematics. You see, both parties at the both extremes, you know, the party that says there is no other thing other than this life, and the party that says, oh, there is a God and here is how God looks like, both are wrong, right? Because neither of them can prove for or against. When you have a situation when you cannot prove for or against, mathematics would advise that you use probabilities. And when you really look at the probabilities of design versus the probabilities of randomness, even though scientists will tell you it's all about the Big Bang and, and you know, evolution and natural selection, I normally say, yeah, mathematically plausible, absolutely possible, right? But if you worked out the probabilities of that, the probabilities are actually not in your favor at all. So the, the theories that we, we use in, in terms of trying to prove that there is an absence of a divine designer, as I call it, I don't use the word God, I think that's a badly used brand, okay? So the, <laughs> you know, the religious establishment uses that brand in a way yeah. that doesn't represent that entity at all. Because in a very, very egoic way, we try to think that we understand what that entity is which is impossible. It's like asking a bee to describe to you the square root of 49. You know, what, what does a bee know about that, right? And we are so limited in our perceptions of the world that we should not be allowing ourselves to say we understand something that's non-physical, let alone something that might be the designer of the game. Now, I decided early on in my life that it seems more probable, even though it really hurts the ego of a human, that there is a smarter being that designed this video game, okay? The ego of a human goes like, oh, no, 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 we're the smartest thing ever. But then that egocentric human would actually allow themselves to be an avatar in Halo or another video game that's created by another human. But the truth is, if you look at it this way, you suddenly say, I know nothing at all. But there seems to be a probability, a likely probability that there is another entity that I might as well want to explore and discover, think about. Mm -hmm. So I never tell anyone that I know for certain that there is a designer. As a matter of fact, I'd be stupid if I say that. I'd be one of the two camps. But I'm saying if there is a high probability that the dice were not just thrown, then in reality, I might as well bet part of my life on this. I might as well bet part of my life on a slightly more comprehensive view than the physical. When I did that at a young age, I started to take that into religion because I thought this was the easiest path, which was basically, you know, let's read all the scriptures. I, re- I read Islam and Hinduism and Sufism and, and Buddhism and Zen and Taoism and Judaism, uh, Christianity, everything I could get my hands on, which have a few common characters. You know, a lot of them sort of tell you the same things, more or less. One of the common characters is many of them are full of crap. Okay, that's the truth. That the, that's the, the, honestly, the, a religious person would have to admit this to say, some of this is not right. But every one of them is full of gold nuggets, beautiful nuggets of wisdom that you can't ignore just because of the crap. And so I basically told myself at a point in my life, I'm going to become a religious fruit salad. Okay, And, and, and my, 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 my logic then was very straightforward. I told myself there is such a beautiful core in Christianity. And sadly, some of the scripture that was written, clearly not by the religion, but by the scholars afterwards, doesn't really fit me. So I'll assume that this is a beautiful basket of apples, in which there are three beautiful apples and ten bad ones. I'll throw the ten bad ones and mm-hmm. give the, the the ten good ones. And you go to Islam, and there is so much beauty, so much mercy, so much compassion. You love it. And you go like, I'll keep this, three good bananas, and then I'll throw away the ten bad bananas. And then you go to Buddhism, and there are so many beautiful things, you know, two wonderful peaches and, you know, and so on. And so basically, I started to pick from each of them. And I started to build what I believe is a beautiful peek into what we don't understand with our physical senses. Mm -hmm. And that took me, I think, into my forties when I realized that if you want to connect to what is not physical, you have to give up on the tool that is getting you so stuck into the physical, which is your left brain, Mm -hmm. okay? And once I started to do that, I think for the first time in my life, I started to consider myself spiritual, okay? Yes, of course, before that, I thought I was spiritual because I was studying all of those scriptures But the truth is, no, I was just a student of scriptures, but to be spiritual is to connect to the non-physical and you can only do that with your heart.
1: Mm. How has that changed your life? You went from a a theoretical understanding of religion, and now after your 40s, you, you connected to something greater through a different part of yourself. How has that changed your experience of life?
2: Imagine you've lived your entire life eating and drinking but not breathing. Imagine that you've spent your entire life talking to male friends or masculine friends but not, you know, feminine friends. Imagine that you spent your entire life, you know, uh, watching football but not actually ever touching a football. My personal view is that you're never complete as a human unless you've connected to the two sides of you. And I'll tell you, the moment my son died, my son was a beautiful he was so handsome he had that enormous presence to him and f- you know we hugged him i hugged him and then four hours later i hugged his dead body okay and i can promise you it wasn't him it was the same beautiful form but he wasn't there his beautiful essence wasn't there and i think most of us humans recognize that we recognize that there are parts of our abilities as humans, parts of our being as humans, our consciousness, our ability to dream, our ability to look at someone like you, Danny, who I've never met in my life, and then go like, he's gonna be my friend forever. Those abilities are not cerebral hmm? Mm -hmm. and they're not physical. And we all experience them. You meet someone and you go like, oh my God, I love them, Mm -hmm. right? And you have no idea why they haven't even started speaking yet. And you see them, you recognize them, right? And when you see that, you've seen, you've peeked into the other side. It, that pure essence of yours is now recognized and seen. You've touched the football. And I will tell you openly, I'm nowhere, nowhere on that journey. That journey is a, is a very different journey than the journey we, we do with our left brain. That journey has a need to switch off your logical thinking because it doesn't apply It has a a need to connect deeply, to be embodied, to be emotional, to be spiritual in in interesting ways. It requires a ton of silence. Sadly, our modern world doesn't provide. It requires so much silence. Hmm? Silence to the point where you start to, you know, when it deafens you, that you're not only silent within, you need that moment where you're sitting out there and there is not a sound. Mm? I I go to the desert when I spend months in Dubai every year. Believe it or not, it's mostly my retreat is is in Dubai and that's very, very busy. Mm? And I go and spend time in the desert. And unlike any other nature, the most incredible beauty of the desert is silence. There are no birds, there are no foxes. And you sit there in the middle of the desert, almost always worried that your car is gonna get stuck and you're never gonna make it back, (laughs) okay? and always, almost, almost always at awe that you have never seen that sky before. And then suddenly, with the constant silence that almost buzzes in your ears, it's a very strange feeling, you get that moment where you stop. And that moment, I promise you, most humans have never felt. And if when you feel that moment, you see a different part of life. You see all of your mistakes, all of your areas of development. All of your stupidity and weird beliefs you see all of the other beings which none of which exists around you at that moment hmm? and you sort of almost see what life is all about because once again most of us in the modern world believe that life is about doing it's about going out there and achieving and recording another podcast and reaching another you know hundred thousand people and making a difference and you know working really, really hard for twenty years to achieve a purpose and then have eighteen minutes on a TED talk to talk about it and you know <laughs> we th- yeah we, th- we think that this is what life is about mm? but believe it or not, life, if you want to connect to that other side of you, is about almost the exact opposite. It's about a moment of being where you get it, where you realize that nothing actually matters, that you're in the middle of that desert, mm-hmm. and that all you have all you need is there with you your true essence is there with you you don't need anything else and those moments are i think years away for all of us including me they need a different model this is why monks go and spend years in hermitages and then come back hmm, and then go like i didn't get it and then go back right this is why if you believe that you know those prophets or let's call them amazing philosophers of the past you know Muhammad had to stay in a cave, Buddha had to go and, and walk, and then finally sit under a tree. Moses had to climb the mountain. You know, you need those moments of isolation. And I think many of us, because we're so engaged in the left brain, desire for doing, 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 doing. We never stop, just become aware and just be. Mm-hmm. You can easily say I am maybe too late in my lifetime. I, should, I need it 50 years more. Uh, to be able to find that moment. But between you and I, that's left brain talk. Because the truth is, can you know it can land on you like a lightning tomorrow. But you need that silence.
0: Mm-hmm. And you're somebody who talks about thoughts and the left brain and thinking yourself happy. Mm. But you've been talking for the past five minutes and you touch your heart so often, so... People may think of you this mathematical scientific person, engineer, but I feel something very different from you.
2: Yes. Uh, so so the, the, int- the interesting part of life, th- let, can we start from a simple example? You graduate, you go to school, you learn a skill, you graduate, you go to work, and it seems that everything's difficult, right? And you do it for a while and do it for a while and do it for a while and it becomes easier. And easier and easier. And, you know, in my last years as an executive, you know, running chief business officer of Google X, which is a very demanding job, I worked four-hour days when I felt like it, honestly, okay? It became easier, not because there was not enough work, but because I had that calm and peace and contentment. Now, to get to that point, interestingly, is practical practice, it's practical exercises. It's basically saying, like you go to the gym, you lift weights all the time, you look like a triangle, you squat all the time, you look like a pear. And that's how we exercise our brains. Now, modern, the modern world is literally telling us to ruin the structure of our brains. It's telling us to look for everything that's wrong, to believe that everything in the world is wrong because what's our source of information, the news, and there's a massive negativity bias in the news, to believe that we're not good enough because what's our source of information, social media, and we think you know everyone appears to be having a great time on social media. This is constantly rewiring our brains to believe life is not right, life is not good. Now, if you're in that space, you don't have the heart to do anything, you don't, you don't, you can't even connect to anything. Mm? You're constantly stuck in that corner that's making you that li- feel that life is not worth living. To overcome this, you need to go to the gym. It doesn't really take mm, a genius to say, lift a bit of weights, you know, squat a little bit, run a little, do you know some hit exercises. You're going to be fine. And that's my 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 original work is entirely around that my original works all for happy my my upcoming book the that little voice in your head they're entirely about that they're entirely about the idea of this brain of ours is highly programmable okay it is the most useful device you've ever been given but you've somehow managed to learn how to use your phone better than you use your brain okay and so there is software up there that's not running well and you know you can we can just remove this software and put better software now that doesn't mean that when you've done that, you're complete. It just means that when you've done that, you've removed the barriers and burdens that now open you up to continue the journey in another way. To continue the journey with calm and peace, with with an with an with an understanding hmm, that this is a journey. Because remember, one of the the big challenges in our world, modern world is that Everything has turned into a target. Everything has turned into a destination. Everything has turned into what's next, what's next, what's next. And yeah, I mean, if you're stressed all the time and if you're unable to find that moment of happiness and calm, I can't even come and talk to you about compassion to other beings. I can't even come and talk to you about empowering the feminine, which is my next work. I can't talk to you about that because you're so stressed and life is so annoying. You know, I don't want any of this now. I just need to focus on myself. And, you know, some people joke and say that the worst politicians in history were just very unhappy people. And I believe that to be true. Unhappiness makes us horrible people. Hmm? And, and so maybe if I can first start on the left brain, very scientific, very, very data-driven side, which is, you know, most of my work is in that space so far. Maybe if I can start there, then I can start in your head and end in your heart. And that's been publicly my strategy. My my strategy. I write truly like a software developer. I don't write a single line in my books that is not there to to take the reader to a point that I need the reader to be at. And I, you know, normally my you know my books would start being six hundred pages and then get reduced in the process. Because I don't want those lines that will distract you. I want everything to take you from step to step to step. But they always start in the mind and end up in the heart. Because without the heart, you're half a person, probably less.
1: Hmm. I was thinking about uh, what you said about Ali and how you hugged him when he was alive and then four hours later you hugged the body and he was no longer there his essence was no longer there and it was very clear and it made me remember our friends lost their daughter uh, dora she was called and the same thing i went to the hospital and i saw the body and it was very clear that she wasn't there anymore w- what advice have you got for other parents in that situation
2: tough to summarize in a conversation a lot of how we deal with death depends on how what we believe death is. Okay, and we should come back to this in depth for a minute. But to to begin, don't be a hero, okay? I, I lost Hali now almost eight years ago. I promise you I cry very frequently, okay? There is a pain associated with a loved one. There is a confusion associated with life twisting your arm in ways that you can't deal with. That is beyond our abilities as humans just ignore so don't be a hero if if you're grieving grief give it a month a year whatever it takes and embrace it fully embrace that you know that you can feel that way don't go into the corners that are not smart if i may say so by the way and i i I don't i'm not ashamed to say this Uh, uh, when my son died the first evening i couldn't drink a sip of water life had stopped I don't want to drink a sip of water i don't want to be part of this physical world in the evening i drank a sip of water for the first four days i didn't eat a bite of food day four i ate something two weeks later nibel and i made love life has a way of getting you back and just like i say don't resist your grief don't resist life when it's time to get back get back get back and live because by the way. Most of, one of the most biggest reasons why people stick to grief is they, when life is inviting them back, is they believe that this is a sign that they don't love their loved one enough. It's like, how can I be happy after they've gone? How can you not be happy after they've gone? The truth is, they would want you to recognize that things are okay and that this is another interesting level in your video game and that at the end of that level, believe it or not, the only certainty in life, the only thing I can place all of my chips on and bet 100% is that you're gonna die, which is a very, very, very interesting way to look at it. So when my son left our world, if you take every possible future possibility that I have, which are infinite in numbers, Mm -hmm. None of them were certain. I, could, I wouldn't guarantee that you and I, when we finish this conversation, that could be my last conversation. Mm-hmm. There's absolutely zero probability calculations that's possible on that. But the only thing that you know 100% is that sooner or later, I will be where Ali is. It may take a year, may take 27, but sooner or later, I'll be in that same place that he is. And whether you're, you're an atheist and you believe that this place is nothingness, or whether you're a believer and you, you you think that you know this place is of a certain description it's irrelevant but you know for certain that you're going there too now when you know that you start to ask yourself what else is hitting my heart and it depends on who left our world if you're a parent there is a serious ego issue an ego is not arrogance ego is a way you define yourself you define your role in life and a parent defines their role as I'm supposed to protect my children. And so when a child leaves, one of the biggest issues is that the parent will say, I failed. Mm -hmm. My ego is hurting, I should have protected them. And I I got attacked very heavily by that when Ali left. And it was very simple. Hmm? My brain started to say you should have driven him to another hospital. Like every three seconds it would repeat that thought. Until I said openly, I know brain, I wish I could. Do you know a way I could? Is there a way I can go back in time and drive him to another hospital No. And the truth, by the way, is I'm sorry to say I shouldn't. I shouldn't have. My son was in pain. He had an appendix inflammation. My son was in pain. I was trying to alleviate the pain of my son by taking him to the nearest good hospital. Okay, The surgeon that did this operation did more than 420 other similar operations in his career. Okay, I went through the process, brain, and I tried to do the best that I could to alleviate the pain of my son. Great, so when we understand that these are all tricks being played on us, we can have that conversation with the brain and say, yeah, I understand you're in pain, but don't add, you know, what do they call it? Uh, Insult to injury? Mm -hmm. Don't put me in suffering. If your loved one is someone you dependent on so much, you start to get thoughts like, how can I live without them? Well, you're living without them right now. And the worst thought is, if I move on with my life, that would mean I don't love them. No, no, if I move on with my life, that means I love them very much. But maybe consider, as you move in with your life, to include them in your productive life more and more, which is what I did. You know, I, I wrote Solve for Happy, to honor what my son taught me. And I took that in a way to keep his essence alive. Yeah, his body is no longer alive, but his essence is. And we are more essence than we are bodies.
1: I just can't get over how intelligent Mo is, Lisa i know this podcast is called lobster brain but i think it may be on this occasion it should be called whale brain (laughs) 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 but one of the great things that i learned from mo is the fact that he's got this highly intelligent brain but he's now connected with his heart and he's living his life through what he calls the female aspect but it seems to be a more complete way of experiencing life Mm.
0: Yeah, he seems for a scientist such a spiritual person and he can feel such a sense of loss with his son and that connection that he has said that adversity has actually changed his life and moved him more towards leading with his heart. It's interesting, you know, he talks about the brain being the the most incredible device known to man and yet we've spent so much time, we've actually can operate our phones better than we can operate our brains now. And we're also driven to kind of acquire stuff and have more stuff. And it's just finding those moments of peace and solitude, which is where we can find those deep answers.
1: Yeah. And I think that there was a couple of things that happened on the day that we spoke with Mo, Lisa. And if you don't mind, I'll share one with our listeners. So we turned up to meet Mo at his apartment in London and he'd actually forgotten he'd got the date wrong. So I phoned him, I was like, where are you? (laughs) And he was the other side of London and he quickly got back to his apartment. He went into his apartment, cleaned it like you wouldn't believe. And then he was running around setting up the podcast, making sure everything was right for us. And that act of humility, it really like, it blew me away. I, I mean, I already knew he's like an incredible, generous and kind man. And something at the end of the podcast happened, if you'd just like to speak about that.
0: So, um, yeah, so um, I lost um, a very important person Um, a few years ago, and he was very, very much loved by lots of people um, in our friendship groups. And in that time, he'd done a huge amount. When he found out he had a terminal diagnosis, he raised so much money for... Ronald McDonald House in, in Manchester, which is the hospital for the Christie. It's the place where parents can come and, and be with their children who are suffering with terminal cancer. He said up the Life is Beautiful Foundation, and so life is beautiful, that, that expression is very important. And when I listened to some of Mo's podcast, it was clear that that's what his son, Ali, said about life, life is beautiful. And when I heard that, I couldn't believe it. It was the, literally the day before we went down to see Mo. And every year, our Christmas tree is decorated with baubles which have white feathers in it. And on the outside of the bauble, it says "Life is beautiful" in Steve's writing. And um, and I literally heard it the night before t- and took the bauble with me. And at the end of our conversation, I explained the story and gave it to Mo. Um, and we both cried. I mean, it was a very, very touching moment and incredible how we are so connected. The world is so connected i mean i couldn't actually believe that and it was um it's a moment i'll never forget
1: thanks for sharing that it was a beautiful moment and i'm happy that our listeners get to know about it because it was it was a moment i'll never forget
0: thank you so much for listening to this episode of lobster brain
1: the next episode we've got dr lisa miller for you she's a columbia professor and she wrote the book the awakened brain She's worked with young people for many years to help them connect with a a deeper spiritual connection. You're not gonna want to miss this episode. She really blew me away. She's a special person.
0: So make sure you're following Lobster Brain so you don't miss any of the amazing episodes that we've got coming up for you. And please don't forget to rate, review and share. Thank you.